Mark 10, 17 through 52. As Jesus continued down the road, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to attain eternal life? Jesus replied, Why do you call me good? No one is good except the one God. You know the commandments. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't cheat. Honor your mother and father. Teacher, he responded, I kept all of these things since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him carefully and loved him. He said, You're lacking one thing. Go, sell what you own and give money to the poor. Then you will have the treasure in heaven and come follow me. But the man was dismayed at the statement, and he went away saddened because he had many possessions. Look around, Jesus said to his disciples. It will be very hard for the wealthy to enter God's kingdom. His words startled the disciples, so Jesus told them again, Children, it is difficult to enter God's kingdom. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. They were shocked even more and said to each other, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them carefully and said, It's impossible with human beings, but not with God. All things are possible for God. Peter said to him, Look, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, I assure you that anyone who has left house, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, or farms because of me, and because of the good news, will receive 100 times as much now in this life, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and farms, and in the coming age, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. Many who are last will be first. Jesus and his disciples were on the road going up to Jerusalem. With Jesus in the lead, the disciples were amazed while the others following behind were afraid. Taking the twelve aside, he told them what was about to happen to them. Look, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. The human one will be handed over to the chief priests and legal experts. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will ridicule him, spit on him, torture him, and kill him. And after three days... He will rise up. James and John Zebedee's son came to Jesus as a teacher. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They said, allow one of us to sit on your right and the other on your left when you enter your glory. Jesus replied, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or receive the baptism I receive? We can, they answered. Jesus said, you will drink the cup that I drink, and you will receive the baptism that I receive, but to sit at my right or left isn't mine to give. It belongs for those whom it has been prepared. Now, when the other ten disciples heard about this, they became angry with James and John. And Jesus called them over and said, you know that the ones who are considered the rulers by the Gentiles show off their authority over them, and their high-ranking officials order them around. But that's not the way it'll be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the human one didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and give his life to liberate many people. Jesus and his fathers came into Jericho. 
that Jesus was leaving Jericho together with his disciples, a sizable crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus' son, was sitting beside the road. When he heard that Jesus the Nazareth was there, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, show mercy. Then he scolded him, telling him to be quiet, but then he shouted even louder, Son of David, show me mercy. Jesus stopped and said, Call him forward. They called the blind man, Be encouraged, get up, he's calling you. Throwing his coat aside, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Jesus asked him, What do you want for me to do for you? The blind man said, Teacher, I want to see. And Jesus said, Go, your faith has healed you. And at once he was able to see and he began to follow Jesus on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I hope that the sermon finds you well. I know that for the next couple of weeks, we're kind of collectively holding our breath to see what's going to happen next. We are trying to see if we will be able to enjoy each other's company in person soon, or if we're heading for another stay-at-home order. That tension, that anxiety, I feel it as well. As much as I desire to be with you, I also want safety. I will continue to pray for you during this time and pray for us that we can all make wise choices and well, for us to have the idea and the thought of the love of our neighbor in our hearts as we decide to make those choices. I had a couple of ideas for this week's sermon title. In today's scripture, we have the disciples asking who will be the greatest and I thought of using a lyric from the song, The World's Greatest by R. Kelly. I only listened to the Bonnie Prince Billy cover of the song, but alas, even though I wouldn't be in my mind quoting R. Kelly directly, I couldn't bring myself to do it. Perhaps I'm participating too much in the cancel culture, but I just couldn't do it. So instead I chose Kanye, and don't worry, the hypocrisy isn't lost on me. We're coming from last week's sermon where my brother Michael brought up the differences in culture and their treatment of children. He hit on a major conversation that keeps coming up in our discussion, and that is God's intention versus the application or reality that we apply to ourselves. Jesus keeps revealing the nature, the true nature of intention to anyone who will listen, and there are some who will see it clearly, and there are others who will only see it partially. The treatment of children is just another microcosm of this, how God intended us for ta- to take care of the children versus the reality of how they came to treat children and how Jesus reminds them of the Creator's intention versus the creation's interpretation. When we continue that conversation today, but, well, we have to also talk about wealth and authority and power. So, you know, all of the stuff that seems to be underpinning of what's happening in America today. This is another familiar story to us. The rich man or the rich young ruler, what matters is the man's wealth has come to define who he is. He comes to Jesus with a question, a question that we talk through our Bible study in Ecclesiastes, a question about how can I not die? How can I use the riches that I've amassed to continue living? He calls Jesus a good teacher, and Jesus kind of claps back at him a bit, saying that only God is good, which is to mean perfect and holy. That it's God alone who is holy. And then he tells the man to follow the commandments that God has given him. The man says, well, I've done all of this since I could. And I've done no wrong according to the laws. 
so now I should have access to eternal life. Then Jesus once again kind of pulls back the curtain upon what God's intention versus the creation's interpretation. God intended for us to take care of the poor and the marginalized and the other, and to not amass wealth in such a way that is distracting us from the kingdom. And now we get to talk about one of the harder parts of the gospel where we must talk about wealth and, well, where Jesus, much like the Red Hot Chili Peppers once said, give it away, give it away, give it away now. There is much debate on what this means. You have two ends of the spectrum of how to interpret the scripture. You have St. Francis, who gave away everything he had, walked into his father's throne room naked to swear off all possessions. And on the other side, you have Joel Olstein, who has estimated a net worth of $100 million. I'm joking a bit, but I'm also very serious. It seems that we really don't know what to do with Jesus' attention behind this statement. Jesus was no stranger to making his street statements in order to make a point. Last week, he told us to pluck out our eye or cut off our hands. Jesus is not being literal, but rather going to an extreme to show how drastically different following Jesus is. When Jesus is saying selling everything, he's trying to make a point that we have heard him say earlier. If you want to follow Christ, you must lose your, lose your life in order to find it. Jesus is not advocating for you to physically die, but rather give up control and follow Christ. So Christ is asking us to, is so is Christ asking us to give up everything we own and join the poor? Maybe. Can you be a Christian millionaire? Maybe. Could you be a Christian multimillionaire? I don't know. But I do think what Christ is saying is how much we do care about wealth or keeping wealth that will let it blind ourselves to the injustices around us. I have a real life example that I came across this week. As most of you know, I'm an avid video game player, and well, to play online with the PlayStation, I need to have a PlayStation Plus subscription. It costs about $60 a year. Now, you can go and do some websites and find subscriptions for $28 a year, and that's a great deal. I begin to look into how this happens. And well, it seems like those people who call your dear old grandparents and scam them out of money, sometimes they get paid in PlayStation cards. Then they take those and sell them at a discount to websites like this that turn it into cash. And then these websites turn around and sell it to me. It's referred to as a gray market, and it's quite the operation. If I buy that card at $28, am I directly hurting anyone? No, I'm not, and perhaps my desire to get a good deal, and I would argue even my love to keep on to my wealth or my money, gets filled but in order for me to get that discount, someone down the line was exploited. And I, should I be okay with that? I often wonder if my desires to guard my wealth blinds me to how the systems that I might participate in exploit people down the line. As a person who has income to spend, I would consider myself rich. And how I spend or not spend might be influenced by my desire to either hoard or increase my wealth. And why? Why do I seek the things of this world? Because much like the writer of Ecclesiastes said, the pursuit of this wealth is vanity. It's meaningless because you will not be able to take these things with you. You must realize that it is 
what is important here on earth, that the kingdom of God, that is here on earth, that's, that is with us, and that is important. Not the things that you own here on earth, but rather the kingdom of God here on earth. Seek first these treasures of heaven. Now, all this seems and feels impossible, and the disciples cry out about that. And I have similar struggles that makes it feel so impossible. If you've been around me recently, I've, I've talked and mentioned this in another sermon, and my struggle right now is trying to figure out how much do I actually need to live and not desire more than what I need. To not give in to the temptation of always desiring more, of always needing more, but to be satisfied with what I have. And as impossible as this may feel, Christ promises us that this with God is possible. Or as John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, says in a sermon titled, The Earnest Christian, Money never stays with me. It would burden me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find a way to my heart. It is important to note that we do not know what happens after the scripture for the rich young ruler. He could have gone home and sold his stuff. It's important to say this because sometimes what Christ asks of us will make us sad. And that is okay. It's okay to be sad when Christ asks us to make changes in our lives. It's okay for us to struggle with Scripture. It's okay to be sad on how the Scripture convicts us. Because, as I've said in an earlier sermon, if we're truly reading the Gospel, it should challenge us. The Gospel is life-changing, life-reorienting. And sometimes, it's going to make us sad. Because what we are asked to do, but we know that Christ is worth it. The disciples also struggle with this because they associate wealth with the authority or power, and rightfully so, because those who were in power were usually wealthy, and those who were wealthy usually had power, which sounds similar to what we find ourselves in today. This is why it's hard for the disciples to understand this point. Surely those who are rich will have authority, and they will be able to enter heaven because they have the power to affect things here on earth. And since they have the power here, surely they will also have power in the afterlife as well. Jesus tells them that all the power on earth actually makes it difficult for them to enter into heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle just because just as with wealth and how it can blind you, so can your earthly power and authority. Now we get into another one of those examples from the Gospel of Mark where Jesus says something and then it can be applied to the following scriptures. The statement Jesus makes is one of his more famous ones, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. This statement will be used as a paradigm throughout the rest of the scripture that we read this morning. First, we have Jesus leading the disciples into Jerusalem and then telling them what's about to happen. That he is leading them into Jerusalem is an important thing that they say because he's first. He's leading them into Jerusalem. And yet what he tells them is that he is going to die, be ridiculed and handed over, being treated like somebody in last. Because once again, the first shall be made last. 
Next, Joms and James are talking, asking to the point at the right and left, asking to be put at the right and left of Christ, and thus wanting to be first in line to Christ. And what does Jesus say back to them? Can you handle through what I am going to go through? Can you be baptized and drink through the cup that I will drink? Can you handle being last? They answer it that they can, not really understanding. And Jesus says, yes, they will experience, but who gets to sit to the right and left of him is not up to him. It's up to the Father. And last, we find out, once again, uh, when Jesus says this statement of who doesn't get to she doesn't get to choose who gets to be the left and right of him, we actually get to know that as people who've read the full story. We Who does get to sit at the left of Christ and right of Christ? When he enters into his kingdom. It's two thieves. Two criminals. Two people who would have been considered to be the last. And now the first to die next to Christ. This paradigm is explained by Christ. Those who hold power over people in this world and lord over a people. They let people know about it. That is not who Christ called us to be. Christ does not want us to desire to have power in this world so that we can lord it over people. Rather, Christ says that it is, if you really want to do what I've called you to do, it will be to serve as Christ has served, to not seek the power of oneself, but rather give up your life and serve the kingdom of God. We hear this echoed in Paul when he talks about Christ. Christ, who had all power and authority, sought to make himself in the form of a servant, that who was first chose to be last, and by becoming last, became the first that we needed. Whenever we bring up a sermon on wealth, we need to talk about authority as well. Because just as the disciples thought that wealth and authority were related in, during their time, they rightfully are still today. They both serve as distractions from the kingdom of God. They serve as misinterpretations from the intention of the gospel. If we interpret the gospel to tell us that serving money or serving authority or power is good for the gospel, then we have missed the true intention of what Christ intended. Or as the founder of Free Methodist B.T. Roberts said, false religions seek their voluntaries among the rich and powerful. The gospel was made for the poor. It is adapted to their capacities and their wants. If the rich receive it, they must come down to the level with the poor. They must, they must lay aside their gold and pearls in costly arrays and be clothed upon with humility. In all ages, the greatest triumphs of the gospel have been won, has been won among the poor. Or as I shared in the email a couple of weeks ago, unholy men... From Once again, from B.T. Roberts, Un unholy men may spread Christianity, but they pervert it as they spread it. Their riches are corrupted, and they corrupt Christianity when they employ it for its support. Perhaps no man has ever devoted so much wealth to the spread of the gospel as Constantine, and no one ever did so much to corrupt it. An impure channel will follow the purest waters. Colored glass imparts its own hue to the light that passes through it. A holy soul alone is qualified to lead others into holiness. We cannot take our love for the things of this world and try to change it or manipulate it for the gospel, or try to hide our love of the things of this world by saying that we are pursuing it 
for the gospel. I'm going to say this again for the people in the back. We cannot take our love for the things of this world and try to change it or manipulate it for the gospel or try to hide our love of the things of this world by saying that we are, by, by saying that we are pursuing it for the gospel. If we are pursuing the gospel, we will be the servant of all. If we are pursuing the gospel, we will lose our lives so that we may find it. If we are pursuing the gospel, we will lay down our life so that we may find it. If we are pursuing the gospel, we want and we will only find power by letting power go. We end the story with a healing because once again, the gospel of Mark wants to lead us into praxis or practice. Just as the story of the children being pushed aside, those who were thought to be last, the children, Jesus once again advocates for them to be first and come to him. We run into a blind man on the side of the road who was a beggar. When he cries out to Jesus, calling him the son of David, the disciples are trying to get him to be quiet because calling him the son of David was a messianic title. This man, who should be last, is one of the first to see who Christ is. And that's a great irony, isn't it? The blind man is the one who sees who Christ truly is. And Christ heals the man saying that his faith has healed him. This is the upside down kingdom of God. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. If we want healing, we must lay down our guard. And guard can look in so many different ways in today's society. Sometimes it's our wealth. Sometimes we live so comfortably numb. Sometimes it's our power that we use to protect ourselves, to guard ourselves. And sometimes it's a healthy body. And we don't perceive the, the struggles that those who are unhealthy may go through. Or those with disabilities may go through. All of these can serve as ways to cloud our view of the kingdom. And if we pursue these ends in themselves or we try to manipulate them into kingdom use, we will be left empty. If we try to manipulate wealth into being a kingdom use, it will not provide what Christ has called us to do. If we try to manipulate power into kingdom use, it will not provide what Christ has called us to. Instead, Christ says, lay those things down. Find your grounding in him. Seek the kingdom first. And Jesus promises the disciples who say, we've given up everything to follow you. If you lay those things down and not hold on to them, you will find wealth in 100-fold. We will find a new type of authority, authority that requires us to become a sermon, a servant of all. We will find a new type of power, a power that we can let go. Be blessed this week, be safe, and please remember to wash your hands.